Preparedness is often looked at as paranoia. Why are you stocking all those supplies? Are you paranoid something is gonna happen? Except when shit hits the fan, the people calling it paranoia sure wish they would have stocked supplies sooner, right? The fecal matter could hit the oscillating blades in a variety of ways. Natural disaster, economic strife, civil unrest, cyber attacks. I mean, we saw how crazy people went during COVID, fighting over toilet paper like their life depended on it. And we're seeing tons of predictive programming from the establishment at the moment, especially in the realm warning us about cyber attacks. What kind of black swan might they be planning for 2024? Good question. Case in point, it's a good idea to prepare your tools and skills now, before you need them. Recently, I talked with Dave, otherwise known as Praying Medic, about this subject. He recently published a book called Emergency Preparedness and Off-Grid Communication, and he has a lot of knowledge about preparing for emergency scenarios. As always, you can support this podcast by subscribing on Locals, Subscribestar, or Substack. All of those platforms will be linked down below, and your help is appreciated now more than ever because they're trying to cancel this podcast. We just got taken down by Spotify the other day. So your support helps keep this content coming. Now, without further ado, here's Praying Medic on emergency preparedness. Dave, I think this is the first podcast or video we've ever done together. Are you sure we didn't do it back in the Q days? Maybe we did, but I I think this might be the first one. No, maybe we did one way back when. I thought I thought we did one back in 2018 or 2019, but you know, I'm not sure. Anyway, it's been a long might, time. <laughs> yeah, sadly, your memory might be better than mine right now. But hey, I appreciate you for taking the time to come on this podcast. I've always been a fan of your work. I think you're one of the best Q researchers in the game. And I've always respected your your professionalism and your ability to look at all sides of the matter and just put different perspectives out there, no matter what kind of flack you get. And recently, I noticed that you've get, been getting into more of a preparedness mindset. You recently came out, came out with a book. It's called Emergency Preparedness and Off-Grid Communication. Yep, there it is right there. And when I saw you come out with this book and getting into more prepare, preparedness content, I wanted you to come on here because myself, I've recently been getting into a lot of the same stuff, researching about preparedness, what to do and all of that. Because Lord knows with the way society's going with, and it's not even about civil unrest or anything like that, which is very much something to be prepared for, but it could be a natural disaster. It could be anything that's a good idea just to be prepared for. We saw how people were running to Costco to stock up on toilet paper during the COVID stuff. And I mean, how many hurricanes have hit the, hit the Southeast and people just need to be prepared for anything in general. So Talk about, um, if you could, talk about a little bit of your journey getting into the preparedness mindset and some of what you put into your book and how the book process went. Yeah, well, my uh, start in preparedness actually goes back to the mid-1990s, believe it or not. Uh, I took a job working with the fire department in uh, Washington State, just south of Olympia. Mm-hmm. And that job took me into a um, a class training that we took at the fire department. It's basically community preparedness. And at that time, there was a lot of concern among the fire departments and community preparedness people, civil defense and, and other agencies 
about earthquakes uh you know on the west coast and specifically um a lot of people don't know this and if you're not from the area it's kind of not that relevant but there is a large fault line that runs along the west coast oregon washington british columbia it's called a cascadia subduction zone fault yep and if they've been looking at this especially in an area called Neetarts Bay, Oregon. They've done a lot of um, geological digs and research in that area. And they found that that particular bay, Neetarts Bay, has become, has been a uh, a swampy, marshy area and actually kind of a prairie at, over periods of time. Then it goes back to being a saltwater marsh and, and a bay. Then it goes back to being a prairie. And they're, they've been wondering, like, why does... What do the soil samples uh, show that this area continually is going back and forth from a dry habitat to a wet habitat? And what they what they figured out is that about every about every 500 years on average, probably 400 years on average, 500 is sort of the longest cycle. 350 years is shorter cycle. The um, that area, the west coast of North America, uh, rises up. Uh, due to the Cascadia, Cascadia subduction zone fault. So the Pacific plate and North American plate, Pacific plate is sliding under the North American plate, making it go higher. And that raises the elevation of the West Coast and turned Neetarts Bay into from a bay into kind of a prairie area. And it raises about three feet on average, and then it suddenly drops like that. Big earthquake. The entire West Coast of North America drops three feet. <laughs> And the prairie area goes back to being uh, a bay, right? So they've they've seen these cycles over history. And at that time, in, in the 90s, um, I was talking to, very, to a number of people who their feeling was, based on the science, that that area is due for another massive shift, another earthquake, where that plate, those plates are going to shift and the continent's going to drop. And, you know, these like a 9-0 earthquake typically has a, a crustal displacement of, you know, six inches to a foot. We're talking about the entire west coast of North America dropping three feet. It would be a massive catastrophic event if it happened. And so that was in, in, in learning about that, I started preparing for, okay, you know, how do you prepare for an earthquake that big? But still, anyone who lives Oregon, Washington, British Columbia, California, you know that earthquakes are a thing. And I actually survived the Nisqually earthquake in 2000... 2001. 2001. So you were in Washington for that Nisqually quake? Yep. I was, dude, I lived three miles from the Nisqually Valley. <laughs> yeah, I was I, uh... near the epicenter. And my house during that earthquake... My house was shaking violently for 30 seconds. I thought my house was going to collapse that was shaking so violently. Yep. I was, I lived in Washington state for the first 30 years of my life. And I was in fifth grade when that Nisqually quake hit, it was a 6.8, but luckily it was the depth of it was really deep. I think it was some yeah. 20, 30 miles deep. So really yeah. there wasn't as much damage on the surface as there could have been. But I remember the bridges uh, I was living in, uh, Kitsap County. So there's a lot of bridges that connect yep. that peninsula to the mainland and they closed down all the bridges 
my brother had to come get me from school because my parents were stuck on the east side over in the Seattle area. So it okay. was uh, it was an interesting experience. And I, I remember that. And 6.8, 30 miles deep. I mean, with the Richter scale, it's exponential. So if we're talking an 8.0 or a 9.0, which is what they forecast with that uh, Cascadia fault line, we're talking yeah. 100 times magnitude at a much shallower depth. I mean, destruction. Yeah. And and the other thing that uh, got, got me kind of into the preparedness mindset at that time was all the freaking windstorms that we had in Western Washington. Windstorm comes in, topples a bunch of Douglas fir trees, power lines go down, and you're without power for three or four days or a couple of weeks if you live out in the boonies. Yep. So that happened a lot. And at that point, uh, I decided, okay, screw this. I'm, I'm, I'm going to get a generator and some extension cords, and I'm at least going to have some emergency backup power in the event that we get um, a, you know, a, another windstorm. And they just kept happening. Like you, you could just guarantee two or three big windstorms every winter in that area. <clears throat> I've got a bunch of families that live on Whidbey Island. Whidbey Island would get hit by windstorms all the time. They'd be without power for weeks. Um, so living in that environment with earthquakes and windstorms and power outages kind of got me into the mindset of, okay, get a generator, get some uh, extension cords and some adapters. And I put actually put together uh, bug out bags for me, my wife, and my kids. And each bug out bag had a tent, sleeping bag, lanterns, flashlights, uh, a couple bottles of water, some granola bars, basically enough stuff to get each person by for two or three days until we could, like if we our house got destroyed, we had no place to sleep because of a big earthquake. We could put up our tents, sleeping bags. We'd have someplace to stay for two or three days. Right. So the, the bug out bag idea was for the earthquakes, the generators, you know, and the other things were, were for the windstorms. And the whole point of this book on emergency preparedness is I'm trying to encourage people who are reluctant to consider emergency preparedness because they feel like they don't know what to prepare for. They feel overwhelmed. Well, there's possibly a terrorist attack and there's earthquakes and there's tornadoes and hurricanes. And what, what do I prepare for? You know, EMPs and everything else, the zombie apocalypse. Well, what I learned at that time is that you don't need to prepare for every possible emergency. Uh, I lived in Washington state. I live in Arizona now. I don't prepare for hurricanes. Because yeah, we're not going to get hurricanes. I live in the middle of the desert. Okay, when it, when a hurricane hits Southern California, uh, we get rain for about two or three days, and it's not like torrential rain. I mean, occasionally we get flooding, but I don't have to prepare for hurricanes. I don't have to prepare for tornadoes because I live in the desert. We don't have tornadoes here, right? So the the issue with preparedness is you don't have to prepare for every possible emergency. You need to prepare for the ones that are most likely to have hit you and the ones that are most likely to have an impact on your way of life. So I prepared for two specific types of emergencies in Washington, big earthquakes and windstorms. Big earthquakes are, uh, are very infrequent. And if they hit, they have a massive impact on your way of life your house gets hit by a 9.0 earthquake your house is toast i don't no care how much earth, i don't care how much earthquake 
uh, you know, structural improvements you made to your house, that house is going down in a 9.0 earthquake. You're not going to have a place to live. So what the, the, the message that I put out on preparedness is start thinking about the things that you are likely to experience where you live in your area, the kind of emergencies you're likely to have, and prepare for those emergencies. When I lived in Wisconsin, which is where I grew up, we had an ice storm. I think it was in the winter of 1977 or 75. That ice storm came through Wisconsin and Michigan, wiped out uh, power lines in, for millions of people for weeks at a time. And, and it was followed by extremely cold temperatures and a lot of people, uh, their, their plumbing pipes burst, uh, no gas, no electricity. It was it was a disaster. A lot of people died. Uh, and and so if I had a preparedness mindset and I lived in the mid upper Midwest, I'd prepare for ice storms and snowstorms because, you know, that's the kind of thing you're going to see. Uh, you don't have to prepare for earthquakes, you know, in the Midwest because they don't have a lot of them, not in the upper Midwest. So uh, the, the book, uh, Emergency Preparedness and Off-Grid Communication, the first half of the book looks at the typical types of disasters that people are likely to encounter. So tornadoes, mudslides, floods, hurricanes, earthquakes. Uh, we live in the desert. We have water shortage uh, issues and occasionally flash flooding, right? So look at all the different geographic areas and the types of natural disasters you're likely to encounter. And then give some basic, simple ideas about what you can do to prepare for that specific type of emergency if you're likely to, to experience it. And then I go into some more uh, man-made type of disasters, right? So in one section of the book covers natural disasters. Another section covers things like nuclear war, EMP strike, uh, and you know cyber attacks and terrorist attacks. The, the risk profiles of those events, things you can do to prepare for those events. Uh, and then the second half of the book is really just based, it, it's, it is a, uh, it's a very long discussion on alternate means of communication that do not rely on cell phone and internet. Because there's a lot of ways we can communicate if we lose the internet and lose uh, cell phones. And I believe at some point in the not too distant future, we are going to lose at least temporarily. I think we're going to lose internet and cell phone service uh, on a on a large scale for a period of time. And uh, I think it's going to happen. And I want people to be prepared when it happens and realize there are other ways to communicate. Uh, and some of them are, are have come along just in the last few years. Uh, that are that are good workarounds for you know periods where you lose cell phone you know lose internet service. Yeah, one thing about our modern quote unquote modern infrastructure is that it's becoming so dependent on electricity and on the internet. And one thing that I prepare for, like like you were saying, much of preparedness is location dependent. Depends on your county, state, your specific region. I no longer live in Washington, so I'm not preparing for an earthquake, but I live in the Rocky Mountains now, so wildfire and things like that. But the sun is a big factor that I don't think a lot of people take into account. And you could have 
an X class solar flare pop off, if it's earth directed, we're going to get hit with a CME or coronal mass ejection. And then you can, you know, kiss some satellites goodbye and it's going to have a big effect on, yeah. on our grid. And we're, we're coming into the peak of solar cycle 25. Mm -hmm. And that is predicted to peak in 2025 late 2024 or sometime early 2025 where uh and, and as a ham radio operator um we ham operators live by the the solar cycles mm -hmm. <laughs> a lot of people don't know this but um so the sun has an 11 year solar cycle where sunspot activity increases and decreases over a period of 11 years um there's very there are times when there's very low sunspot activity and times when there's very high sunspot activity and let's so 2019 was the low spot for the current solar cycle 25 and at that point uh there were there was probably an average of about eight to ten sunspots a day on the surface of the sun very low uh number of sunspots low geomagnetic uh, disturbances, and not a lot of coronal mass ejections, not a lot of solar flares. It was pretty quiet. And that kind of activity actually makes it very hard to communicate using ham radio because um, ham radio operators on the lower bands uh, between three and 30 megahertz on the HF bands, we use um, the ionosphere to skip our radio signals off the ionosphere to other parts of the world so we can talk to people in, in other countries. That is <clears throat> that is really difficult. It's more difficult to do when there is less or fewer sunspots because it's the sunspots that send off waves of electromagnetic radiation. They hit the ionosphere, they ionize the atmosphere, and they make it easier for radio signals to skip. So many of the of, of the HF bands are not usable uh, in 2018 and 2019 because there was so such low sunspot activity. Right now, the 10 meter band is open every single day. There's people on the 10 meter band. They've been on, the 10 meter band has been open now for about a year, pretty consistently, when it has not been available for ham radio operators for probably five years. So the sunspot activity is an indicator of how much ionizing radiation is coming to the earth. And ham radio operators use that, but as you pointed out, if you get excessive solar flare, big X-class solar flares and coronal mass ejections, that sudden intense radiation destroys satellites, it plays havoc with GPS, it <clears throat> uh, it makes radio blackouts <laughs> happen. Mm -hmm. It 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 disrupts a lot of communications when there's massive solar flares and CMEs. And as we get into the peak of, you know, uh, solar cycle 25 into 2024, later 2024 and 2025, it seems likely we're probably going to have more of those in addition to like right now, I'll give you an example. So when I said 2019, you know, you, you'd see they would, they'd count. There's people that count the sunspots every day. They give you a sunspot count. And if you're interested, I can give you a sunspot count right now. Back in 2019, there was like eight to 10, maybe 11 sunspots a day. Right now, the sunspot number is 60, 67. That's actually relatively low. Over the last 
uh, two or three months. Typical sunspot number is around 130, 120, 130, 150 sunspots a day versus 10 or 11 or 12 sunspots four years ago. So there is a massive increase in electromagnetic radiation coming toward the earth. And I know you have a few things you want to say about that. So, uh, Oh yeah, there's, there's (laughs) many, many things we could go off into left field with and talk about this subject, but not going to go there. It's kind of outside the scope of this conversation to an extent, but fair enough. Kind of, yeah, we we could go on for hours about that. And I don't want to spend too much time on it. Maybe, uh, maybe a part two podcast, but Kind of like you were discussing earlier with earthquakes, there are certain cycles and, you know, every few hundred years, the pressure gets released and all of that. Similar with the sun. And back in the 1880s, 1890s, there was what was called the Carrington event, where you had a massive X-class solar flare. Of course, we didn't have the same instruments back then to be able to calculate exactly how big it was, but estimates place it around X-50 range, which is massive. And it was such a big solar event that it was melting copper wires. Luckily, our, you know, back in the 1880s, 1890s, they didn't have much of an electrified infrastructure, but they saw copper wires and some of the copper wires around the country were melting because of that. And it inhibited the um, Morse code transmission. Now, here we are in the 21st century, much more dependent on electricity and internet and copper wires and all these sorts of things. So, if we were to get even an X10 class solar flare, it would be uh, it would be big. And things like off-grid communication would be much more important to be able to uh, know. Yeah, and uh, oh gosh. <laughs> yeah, so there there's a number of possible scenarios that could disrupt uh, you know, typical, uh, cell phone, internet communication, solar flares, uh, big ones, uh, EMP strike. Yep. You know, we're we're looking at going into a potential hot war against Iran or China, North Korea. Kim Jong-un has been rattling his saber. Any one of those uh, nation states could launch a nuclear weapon toward us, could detonate an EMP in our direction. EMPs, electromagnetic pulse <clears throat> weapons. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, speculation about the potential damage from an EMP, mostly theoretical because we don't really have a lot of experience in knowing what exactly happens to radios, cell phones, cars with an EMP detonation at 200 miles above the surface versus, you know, 50 miles above the surface of the Earth. What is the damage? What kind of we, we know theoretically that an EMP <clears throat> is going to produce uh, a massive voltage spike that is that is going to blow up uh, printed circuit boards. So anything that has electronic circuit board in it, most radios, uh, cell phones, TVs, cars, cars, elect- yeah. electronic control modules, and, you know, virtually any car built probably after 1990 has a electronic uh, control module. All electronic circuits are potentially going to be disrupted, destroyed with it with a near EMP strike. And again, like I said, it's it's theoretical. Like a lot of people make Faraday cages for their radios and, and phones and tablets and computers and various devices. 
But <clears throat> building a Faraday cage is 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 it's an experiment because experts like I've read a lot of online forums and really knowledgeable experts really don't know whether or not a Faraday cage is going to do anything to preserve um, the device that it's in if an EMP hits. It's it, there's just a lot of unknowns in that particular field. Um, and it's, it's impractical. Like I've got all kinds of radios in this room. This is my radio room. I've got, you know, solar chargers. I've got amateur radios. I've got GMRS radios. I've got my little mesh-tastic radios. And all of these devices have, you know, printed circuit boards and potentially could become useless if, they, you know, if we get an, an EMP strike. Uh, I am, um, I'm anticipating that, uh, something else is going to happen. I don't think we're going to lose communications because of an EMP strike. I suspect it's more likely that, uh, like say we get into a war with China or Iran or Russia. Um, I think if we got into a war, uh, whether it's due to a, a terrorist attack in, on the homeland or something of that nature, I suspect then that the Biden administration would impose martial law use the War Powers Act to basically shut down the internet. And in the name of national security, they could, they they do have the power to completely shut down the internet and cell phone service. Um, I could see that as a much more likely scenario than an EMP. And then it's a question of, okay, your devices work, but the government doesn't want you to use them, <laughs> right? And, and the reason I say that is, look, we've been battling this, the censorship regime for the last eight years, one of their main tactics is to silence us, shut us up, get us off social media. And I think at some point they're uh, they're going to up the, the the game. And rather than suspending your Twitter account, suspending your YouTube channel, they're going to just tell you you can't use your computer and phone anymore. And then we're going to have to find workarounds for uh, how do we communicate with people, you know locally, regionally, uh, across the country and around the world. Much more difficult to do, but it can be done. And there are a lot of devices you can use, some of which require a license, some of which don't, uh, that you can still communicate with people uh, in, in your sphere of influence without the internet, without cell phone. Yeah, right. I mean, with Elon buying Twitter and now all the all the way that that's shaking up the system right now, uh, they could, you know, I'm a lot of people are thinking 2024, there's going to be some sort of black swan event that black swan mm -hmm. assumes that people don't know it's coming when, if you have a certain powers that be or planning it, uh, technically not a black swan then, but cyber attack, false flag. There's a lot of predictive programming going on out there right mm -hmm. now about that. So it's just a good idea to be, uh, you know, be, at least mindful of all these things, not necessarily expecting them to happen. Don't need to be paranoid. Right. There's a big difference between prepared and paranoid, but right. Right. I, I think fear is, is, is our enemy. Mm -hmm. you, you don't want to you know, go to bed at night worrying that you're not going to be able to commu commu uh, communicate. Easier for me to say, you don't want to go to bed at night worrying that you're going to lose communication with family and friends. Worrying doesn't do any good. If you are concerned about the potential to lose communication with friends and family, 
you should take some steps, take some action steps to make sure that you are able to communicate with them somehow, you know, one way. All right. Look, it's a pager. Well, not really. That is a Zolio satellite communicator. Okay. Zolio, Bivy Stick, Garmin, they all make these little satellite communicators that you you purchase it and it connects to your phone via Bluetooth. And uh, if your kids, parents, whoever have a have a device, a satellite device, and their theirs is connected to their phone. If your cell phone service goes offline for whatever reason, you can uh, connect your phone to your satellite communicator, send a message to the people in your contacts and say, hey, it's me, I'm okay. No communication by a cell phone right now, but <clears throat> we have the, I have my satellite communicator and if you you know have an emergency, send me a message. So satellite communication is, is one example of a workaround. The issue is, uh, Here's, here's the fly in the ointment. Um, satellite communication communicators like this one are designed for backcountry camping, sailing, people who are out of um, cell phone range pretty regularly, and it allows them to stay in touch with people who are on the grid when they're off grid. And in that situation, the cell phone service and internet service is still working. What the the caveat with these satellite communicators is they still send messages through ground-based internet uh, servers. So as long as the internet service is available, even if your cell phone service is not available, if the internet service is available and your messages can go through the internet gateways, you're fine. Your messages will go through. But if at some point the internet servers get shut down and there's there aren't a whole lot of internet servers that run the internet. Uh, there's some key gateways that if those servers went offline, there's about 13 or 14 of them, 95% of the internet traffic would screech to a halt. If those internet servers got taken down, um, satellite communicators are not going to work because of, even though you send and receive messages through a satellite, all the data is going through internet servers. And until Elon gets his servers in space, there's no workaround for that right now. Yeah. You know, so- Elon recently, um, he came out with his cyber truck and I saw some takes, some hot takes on Twitter about it, calling it the best post-apocalyptic vehicle that there could be. And I think a cyber truck would be the worst post-apocalyptic vehicle there could be. Oh, because- nah, dude, you want a 64, you know, Chevy uh, pickup truck. <laughs> exactly. You, I mean, any like, electric no vehicle. electronic anything. Right. Any electric vehicle, you're going to have to be charging it. Okay, good luck, post-apocalyptic world. But like you were mentioning earlier, electronic control unit. So yeah, right. you said 1990, I think it was about the mid 80s around there, they started introducing ECUs into the uh, fuel injector mechanism in vehicles. And any EMP that goes off, big solar flare, um, false flag, EMP, nuclear bomb, detonated, tactical nuke, 100 miles above the atmosphere. Boom, you can kiss your uh, ECU and your vehicle goodbye. So you want, yeah, 19, 
1964 yeah. Chevy or something like that. That'll still uh, keep you going. Yep. Yep. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, there, like I said, there, there are a lot of different ways you can communicate uh, in a, in a grid down situation. Um, and there's, I guess, just to kind of a, you'd have to bifurcate the conversation. Um, if, if you're new to the, to the subject, new to the conversation, there's a lot of different um, similar but related issues that you have to think about when you're talking about grid down communications. So one of the issues we could suffer is a power outage. All right. Uh, we've been getting warnings from CISA and other government agencies saying that Iran, Russia, and China are looking to cripple our power grids. All right. So what do you do if you lose power, but you still have internet and cell phone service? That's one problem. Uh, at that point, you want backup power, some type of power that you know isn't tied to the grid. So you're looking at generators uh, that work on natural gas, propane, or gasoline. Solar generators are a really good option. Um, I've I live in here here in an area where we have sunshine about 320 days a year. So uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of solar. I've got several solar generators and solar panel options for generating power quietly uh, because that is, an, that is an issue. Like if, if we have some kind of event where there is civil unrest, rioting, and, and looting going on, one of the things you don't want is you don't want to signal to everybody out there in the world you know, with your 10,000 watt generator, hey, everybody, I'm running my generator. I got all kinds of food and, and things come on over. And, you know, very good point. Indeed. Yeah. Um, it, when you it, when you're thinking about preparing for a potential, you know, martial law situation or anything where there's going to be rioting and civil unrest, you want to keep a small footprint. You don't want to have your house fully lit in the middle of the night when the rest of your neighborhood is dark. That is a big flashing neon sign to burglars. Hey, come to my house. I have everything you need. Same thing with a with a, with a, a, a gas powered generator. It makes a big signal. You have power and no one else does. So things like using a solar generator. Solar is quiet. No one knows that you've got a solar panel in your backyard with a solar generator, you know, powering your uh, refrigerator and whatever else you need inside your house. So one of the one of the things to think about is if you're concerned about losing power, um, think about, you know, power options, solar versus gas, you know, propane, natural gas, a lot of different options. Uh, and, and then you also want to think about things like um, what happens if we have power, we don't have cell phone, don't have Internet. Right. So cell phone or Internet is going to be a communication issue. Um, that's when you want to start thinking about, hmm, maybe I should get a little Baofeng handheld radio. Yep. Where's my Baofeng? I got one around here somewhere. Which you can buy on Amazon for about They're 20 like 20 bucks. bucks. Yeah. And, um, you know, you can you can at least listen to local ham radio operators who may have licenses, even if you don't have, have a, an amateur radio license. You can listen to amateur radio traffic. And a lot of times what... What I think is likely to happen in a in a situation where we have a grid down crisis 
you're going to have amateur radio operators who are going to be operating on battery power, and they'll be communicating with international news from Europe and Asia and Africa, around the world. Um, and and they will then, um, ham radio is kind of, it's um, it's siloed, I guess is a good way to say it. So you have some ham radio operators who talk internationally on a daily basis. They're on, on the radio all day long, talking to people around the world. Then you've got ham radio operators who are talking within the US or within Canada or within Europe on a daily basis. They do national communications. And then you have other ham op operators who, who are operating within their county and city on a daily basis. They have daily nets or weekly nets where they get together and they're talking about what's happening uh, in the world locally on local repeaters or on local simplex channels. So what you get is you have this um, sort of a network of people who are communicating. And if you have one of these little things, you can listen in. You can at least listen in on the conversations and get information about what's happening. A another real simple uh, thing to think about is AM and FM radio. Most cars, except there are some new cars where they're actually getting rid of the AM radio option. They're just going to have FM. But most cars have AM and FM radio. And in most um, urban areas, there are a couple of stations that are designated as emergency broadcast stations. They have backup power and they should be on the air in a grid down crisis. And if you know what those stations are, you can tune to them. <clears throat> they should be providing emergency broadcast information, the nature of the crisis, the duration of the crisis, if martial law has been declared, in what areas, what's going on. Like if you don't know what's what's happening, um, there are a number of ways that you can just tune in to, like I said, local AM and FM radios uh, to get local info. Also, like I said, you know, the the, the Baofeng radio it, it will be your friend, but if you plan on using it, learn how to use it before the crisis happens. You don't want to, you don't want to be fiddling around on the radio trying to figure out what frequency do I turn to uh, in the dark when you're, when you're kind of frightened and, and all hell is going on around you. It's good to learn how to use the radio and how to contact people before the crisis happens. That's kind of yep. the point. Yep, yep yeah. exactly. Sure. So, so yeah, for a good majority of this conversation, we focused on communication, which is great. We focused on backup power generation methods. How about, how about the basics? Food and water. Food and water. <clears throat> yep. Food and water. Yeah. So that, that is the basics. You know, if you uh, are new to the conversation, new to prepping, uh, four years, as long as there have been people preparing, you, you can go back to like, you know, <laughs> the biblical floods. What did they need? They needed food and they needed water. <clears throat> and those two things have not changed for thousands of years. So uh, if you are looking for some steps you can take, to get yourself prepared for any type of crisis, because think about this: if you live in a, a metropolitan area that has a, a municipal water supply in a power outage or during a cyber attack, it's likely that the municipal water supply, the pumps that run the municipal, municipal water supply, are not going to be working. Uh, it's very likely that both wastewater treatment and municipal water supplies 
could go offline and you could be without water and without sewage treatment, uh, which could create a number of problems. So without water, uh, you know, you're going to be SOL. Uh, so most people kind of there are aware that your if you have a water heater, the water heater contains, you know, 50, 60 gallons of water that, that you could use in a crisis. It's it that's true. It's a little tricky getting water out of a water heater. If you know that there's a little spout at the bottom, about two inches off the floor, can be a little tricky getting that water out of there. Much easier just to buy some water from the grocery store. You know, one gallon jugs, two gallon jugs, five gallon containers. You can treat it for long-term storage. Um, most preparedness experts recommend storing one gallon of water per day per person for however long you expect the crisis to last. A good a good way to start if you're new to this is uh, store up seven gallons of water. Just put it in a closet, put it in a, in a bedroom closet somewhere. If you have seven gallons of water, that is enough water to get you by for basic food and water consumption for a week. And that's it. That's a start. It's a way to start. You should then as time goes on, add to that water supply. So buy another seven gallons next month. If you don't have, don't have a lot of money, I mean, some of these steps for preparedness don't cost a lot of money. Uh, it's not it's not really expensive to store water, but water is the key thing that, that you're gonna need uh, in, in a crisis. So water and and there's then there's issue of water treatment. I don't know how much you want to go into water treatment, but uh, you can get there, depending on where you live, there are sources of water, pools, streams, lakes, rivers. You need to get a supply of water. There's all kinds of water around most places. Problem is most of it's contaminated. So then you're looking at treating the contaminated water with chlorine dioxide or bleach and then filtering it and boiling it or using some kind of a filtration device to filter out uh, you know, contaminated particles, lead, things like that yeah uh it's it's <laughs> for for these reasons uh it's it's good to store drinkable water wait it's way safer and easier than having to treat water that from a source that you don't know if it's clean or not mm -hmm. and then there's food uh you know it's uh, i have reason to believe that we're probably going to see food shortages in the in the future as well uh, because I think, look at what's going on in the Re in the Mediterranean and the Red Sea right now. There are a lot of ships and a lot of shipping companies that are refusing to move their boats through the Red Sea because the Houthis are using drones to attack and sometimes actually take their landing crews on the ships and physically taking them over. Oil comes through uh out of the out of the middle east through the mediterranean the red sea and that as that area gets more and more weaponized it's going to be tougher to get oil out of that area and because biden in his infinite wisdom decided to shut down drilling and oil and gas exploration here domestically we are heavily reliant on overseas oil and since we're at war sort of a undeclared war against russia we can't buy russian oil so where do we get our oil from Saudi Arabia, mostly, and other 
uh, Middle Eastern countries. And that comes through those areas that are now under military attack. I think we're going to see gas, oil and gas prices go quickly escalate later this year. And as soon as gas and oil prices go through the roof, the cost of food goes through the roof as well. We well we all saw that uh, last year. So if we get into a situation where gas and it, you know I'm talking about economic collapse because I think I think economic collapse is another reality we have to face. Mm-hmm. The the Federal Reserve is on life support. Uh, we are so far in debt, it's ridiculous. And at some point, um, the music is going to stop and we're going to go through a, a rather severe financial crisis. During a financial crisis, financial collapse, economic collapse, I think we're going to have a banking crisis in, in the not too distant future. Uh, electronic payments can't be made. And this is another issue with losing the internet, losing cell phone service. How do you... How do you manage your affairs when you can't make electronic payments, electronic transactions, your debit card doesn't work anymore. How do you pay for goods and services? How do truckers get paid? How do firefighters get paid? How do cops get paid? Uh, will they come to work when they're not paid, right? You run into this, this kind of spiraling cycle where society kind of grinds to a halt because of a lack of ability to pay for services. And grocery stores quickly don't get deliveries anymore because truckers aren't driving because they they can't use their cards to get diesel fuel. You run into the situation where there's after three or four days there's no food at the grocery stores, even if you had money. Uh, a lot of stores will probably not have food, so storing up food is the second most important thing. Uh, a lot of ways you can store food. Uh, some people are into dehydrating food. Dehydrated food is good. Uh, I'm a big fan of canned food. Mm -hmm. Um, even though there's an expiration date on canned food, according to the U S department of agriculture, they've actually done testing on this canned food is essentially has no, uh, effective expiration date. You can, it has an indefinite shelf life. They have opened up cans of food that were canned a hundred years ago and they were perfectly fine. Uh, and usable. They put, they put expiration dates on canned food so that you will throw that canned food out and buy more. Exactly. But, but canned food has really an indefinite shelf life. So you can store, you know, spam, tuna, chicken, beef, you know, chili, whatever canned foods you like, fruits and vegetables, and not worry about it going getting spoiled. 25 years later, you can open up a can of you know, canned beans and it, they'll be fine. Canned food is a good option. Uh, the nice thing about canned food is because it's heated when it's canned, it's pre-cooked. You don't have to heat any food that is canned. You can heat it if you want to, but you don't have to. So that cuts down on your need to have fuel, uh, for heating food. If you have a, you know, a can of, you know, can of, uh, you know, macaroni or whatever, you can eat it right out of the can. You don't have to cook it. Less worry about alternate sources of fuel um, don't have to worry about washing the bowl and washing the plate and silver <laughs> plastic. Oh, plastic and paper plates, spoons, knives, and bowls are a good idea in it for a crisis because you may not want to be wasting a lot of water washing dishes. Uh, just something to think about. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, the, the food options are, are 
uh, unlimited right now. I mean, there's a, I know a lot of people now who are doing their own freeze dried food. Yep. Um, I'm a big a fan friend. of, uh, I'm a big fan of freeze drying too. The freeze drying yeah. machines are a little expensive, a few thousand They're bucks, expensive, but, but, the, but it's cool. I, I have a friend who, who has a freeze drying machine, a big one, and they freeze dry a lot of food and it's, it's actually pretty cool. You know, mm -hmm. if you have the ability to do it. So there's a lot of options, but again, um, you want to store enough food, shelf stable food to get by for a week or two. If you expect a week or two to be the duration of the crisis, I think our crisis is going to be a lot longer than that. Uh, and I think and in that be... case, if it is a lot longer than just a couple of weeks, then storing seeds becomes important. Yes. Storing seeds uh, is, is really big. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I, I don't think uh, it's it's any secret anymore that um, genetically modified foods are the source of a lot of modern illnesses that we didn't have 50 years ago. Uh, you know, I, I I don't know anybody now over the age of 50 who doesn't have some type of autoimmune condition, and I mm -hmm. think a lot of those autoimmune conditions are the body's reaction to GMOs. Uh, you know, why do some, why are there so many people who have gluten intolerance now? And I don't, I didn't know anyone who had gluten intolerance when I was growing up. And nowadays, almost everybody I know has it. It's just it's kind of weird. So if you can, you know, store heirloom seeds uh, that are not, you know, genetically modified, even better. Uh, and think about things like growing your own your own food if you live in an area and you've got a little bit of land grow your own food have a little garden i've got a friend who's growing a garden inside of his house he's got grow lights in his house he's not growing marijuana <laughs> <laughs> he's he's growing cilantro and celery and some tomatoes and stuff inside of his house because he wants to be self-sufficient he wants to break the supply chain to the to the greatest degree possible he's tired of us being dependent on foreign supply chains for everything that's awesome. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like basically free money you're growing and self-sustainability is really at the core of this whole discussion, being sustainable for your own food, your own water, your own power. Um, yeah. Being self-responsible. Well, and, and communication too, because yeah. the, the hassle with communication right now is we are completely dependent on somebody else's infrastructure, somebody else's network. Uh, you know, Cox or Comcast or whoever, they have their internet service. They provide the servers, they provide the cabling, they provide all the stuff. Cell phone service, we're totally reliant on someone else's infrastructure to allow us to communicate with each other. Yeah. The problem with that system is at any point that uh, system can be taken offline and you lose access to it and you have no way to get back to it. If they don't want you on it, uh, you're not on it. Uh, it's totally dependent on them. And with, with radio communication, you own the network. If you have a little amateur radio, this is a little uh, HF amateur radio I use to contact people around the country. Uh, if you have the radio and you have your little cable to connect it to your computer or to an, and to an antenna, uh, you you have you own the network. You can communicate to people, and if you have a battery, little battery for my radio. Uh, if you have 
power. You're just pulling things out of all kinds of stuff. I've got all camera. kinds of I've got all kinds of props here. If you have a source of power, if you have a a device that will help you communicate and cabling to connect you to an antenna and or your computer, you have the ability, you have your own communication network and you're in control of it. The government can't tell you, you can't, well, the government can tell you, you can't use it. And I expect at some point the government's going to crack down on the use of radios. Mm -hmm. I, I think the information war is going to spill over into the radio domain in the coming days. Then we have this debate about does the government have the rightful authority to to regulate and silence people using radios? And that's that's the subject for another discussion. Yeah, but, that's going to get into an insane public debate there. Oh, yes. But yeah. it's the same thing with food and water. If you have your own food, have your own water, have your own ability to generate power, have your own ability to communicate, you are less dependent on other people, other people's networks that can be, you know, taken down with no warning. We saw that during COVID. Uh, the supply chain issues, how suddenly you couldn't get parts for your car, you couldn't get this, you couldn't get that because the supply chains were broken because boats weren't weren't uh, able to move the parts. Um, the less dependent you are on other people's supply chains, the more reliant you are on your own stuff, the better off you're going to be. Josh, the government does not want us self-sufficient, not only with the point you just made about them possibly cracking down on radios, but you've got some of these states out there that are cracking down on people collecting their own rainwater. It's, yep. it's insane. There's a tax now. Some state in Maine, I think, has a freaking rain tax. They tax you by the square footage of your property for the rain that falls on your property. Oh, my gosh. I'm not kidding. <laughs> Soon it's going to be a carbon tax for every breath you take, and they're going to crack down on people buying matches and lighters because the carbon output, it's, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we went through food, water, communication, power. One last category that I want to cover with you is tools. And when I say tools, I mean that in a fairly general sense, tools for cooking, tools for chopping wood, doing maintenance around the house, gardening, and yep. possibly even firearms in that category of tools. Firearms for self-defense, firearms for hunting. That could be under the category of food as well, you know, gathering your own food yep. out in the wilderness. Um, you and I are lucky enough to live in very 2A-friendly states, but some states, of course, aren't. Um, so let's talk about tools for a few minutes, and then we'll finish this up. Sure. Love to. So uh, if you want to be self-sufficient and you want to be able to um, live your lifestyle in an era where the government is increasingly try trying to force us into the lifestyle we do not want, okay, that's huge yeah. because yeah. the globalist agenda, uh, put simply, is to have us all living in these urban ghetto high-rise uh, apartments where all of the wilderness areas are off limits. We are sequestered into our little 15-minute cities, which will become five-minute cities, which will become, you're not allowed to go travel more than a mile from your little apartment. And we're going to put tracking and monitoring devices on you. And if you go more than a mile from your little high-rise apartment, you're going to be in big trouble. Uh, they want to force us into a lifestyle that we do not 
want. If we saw it coming, we would definitely not want it. And some people, unfortunately, don't see this coming. A lot of people do. So what's the alternative? The alternative is you live your lifestyle uh, on your terms, on your property, with your rules. And to do that requires some uh, implements of construction and destruction, actually. right? So mm -hmm. uh, in general preparedness, if you live in an area where uh, you have uh, any kind of storms, wind storms, hurricanes, good to have a basic set of tools to do home repair. If you get broken windows, even if you don't live in an area where there's uh, tornadoes and hurricanes, there's a possibility that you're gonna your neighborhood is going to see rioting and civil unrest, and you could end up with broken windows, broken doors. You need to be able to repair your home. So having some couple sheets of plywood, some screws, some nails, a battery-operated drill, hammer, saw, uh, broom, dustpan, some plastic tarps, some plastic sheeting, some a lot of duct tape. Having some basic tools for home repair uh, to fix up things that have been, you know, destroyed either by the weather or by, you know, rioting people. It, those are some of the basic tools that I think you would be wise to have uh, at home. Shovels, rakes, garden, garden implements, hose, uh, pickaxes. If you want to, if you're going to do gardening, if you're going to do, you know, home maintenance in your yard. I have a pretty, um, pretty, pretty good supply of garden implements that I use for various things. Um, not just for, I don't even do gardening. I mean, we've got uh, that, you know, um, ornamental landscaping, but I have a lot of, you know, rakes, shovels, hoe, pickaxe, all that stuff for various projects that I have around the house for setting up radio antennas and <laughs> other things I have to do. So, so having a supply of tools is necessary if you want to live life on your terms. Uh, now, let's talk about survival skills. Um, number one, everyone should have uh, some kind of a, uh, like a Leatherman tool, multi-tool. Multi-tools yep. are great to have. I've got several of them. Should have various blades, uh, screwdrivers, can opener, bottle opener, you know, whatever saw file kind of uh, accessory blades. I think it's very good to have one wherever you go. I've got one in my Jeep. I've got one in my bedroom. I've got one in my kitchen. I've got them all over the place. Uh, really handy for a lot of different things. Uh, you know, emergency medical treatment. You need to yes, cut some yes. cloth to make a tourniquet to put on somebody's, you know, arterial bleeding leg that they're going to die in a few minutes. And practice they, with the tourniquet too. A lot of people don't even know what a tourniquet is. And if you do know right. what it is, don't just get one, get two or three or four and make sure you have one to practice with because when you use a tourniquet, it's only one use. It's a one use only. And then it gets to, yep. to expand and you can't use it again. So get one I, to I practice actually, with. Yeah, I actually have a very, very lengthy chapter in this book on emergency first aid. Perfect. That covers awesome. di diabetic emergencies, sucking chest wounds, open and closed head injuries, um, you know, how to treat bleeding, how to treat all kinds of, uh, uh, you know, bee stings, snake bites, stuff of that nature, burns, a lot of first aid, medical first aid information in the book. How but about, yeah, um, in terms of tools, how about fire starting tools? Fire starting tools. Everyone should have a ferro rod. 
Yes. Uh, right. So ferro rod is a, it's a, it's a rod usually about four, four inches long. You have one. Yep. Yep. I got a ferro rod that's actually in, sorry, it's downstairs. I don't have it on camera here, no, but I got right. a, I got a ferro rod in a brick of fat wood. So it about it's about like that. It's about <laughs> it's like that. Yeah. It's about like a Sharpie. And then you have your uh, blade it's, it's, and you just yeah, it's a, create the spark. It's a metallic rod that you can use like the back of, of a knife blade. And, and if you scrape on it, it creates sparks. It's like a flint. And if you have something like uh, a bag of magnesium shavings or something flammable, you put your uh, sparks down into the magnesium shavings or your tinder to start a fire. You need to start an emergency fire because your house got burned and looted or destroyed by an earthquake and you're out in the boonies camping and you need to start a fire. Uh, so feral rod, having some kind of tinder, lots of different ways you can do tinder. Some people use fire starters that are like a wax uh, combination with with mulch, wood mulch. Um, I like magnesium shavings um, because you could throw those things in the bottom of a river for a week and pull them out and they'll still... <laughs> I'll still light off <laughs> in a pinch as well. You can use um, hand sanitizer, spring yes. some hand sanitizer on them or Vaseline, yep. soak some cotton balls in Vaseline. And here's, here's another thing you need to have a compass and a map of your local area. Mm -hmm. Because if we lose cell phone service and your little navigating app is no longer going to tell you how to get to Costco, uh, there's a lot of people right now who have never had to read a map in their life to navigate anywhere. And they don't even know what the word topographical means. And let me tell you, if we lose navigation aids through your phone and your mobile devices, you're going to be in a world of hurt. And I would start learning how to read maps right now. And by the way, in my book, Emergency Preparedness and Off-Grid Communication, there's an entire chapter in there that teaches you how to use a compass, how to find direction finding without a compass, how to find north, how to find the cardinal directions, how to read a map, how to navigate with a map. You have never figured out how to get from one town to another town, different addresses. There's a chapter in that it teaches you step-by-step step how to navigate using a map. Because I think that is gonna be a big uh, issue that, we, that we're gonna all have to deal with. Yep. I, as a paramedic firefighter, I was required to navigate to all of our calls using a map. They wouldn't let us use GPS for many years, even when it was available. It was too unreliable when it was when first came online that they still forced us to navigate by maps. Uh, and it's a good thing. Yeah. Uh, so map and compass, essential to have. Uh, firearms. I think firearms are another essential to have, especially going into a situation where we could potentially be seeing civil unrest and rioting um you know if you live in a state where you have the ability to own a gun and especially if you live in one like arizona has the castle doctrine yep um the castle doctrine is basically it's it is a it's a law that allows homeowners to use lethal force in the defense of their home if they believe their life is in immediate danger and they do not have to with they do not have a duty to retreat before using lethal force. Some states have the castle doctrine where someone breaks into your home. They, you believe that your life is in danger. You can shoot them uh, and not have to retreat. In other states, 
that do not have the castle doctrine, you actually have to retreat first uh, and warn them before using lethal force. So it's a good idea to know if you're going to use, if you if you have guns, know your local laws, know what statutes um, are applicable to where you live. But for self-defense, home defense, um, I think it's important to have uh, at least one pistol, uh, preferably a full-size pistol with, you know, 15, 18, 17 round magazine. Uh, my wife likes the revolver. She doesn't like she doesn't like to rack the slide on a pistol, so she uses a revolver. She's got a 357. Uh, for women, a lot of women find revolvers a better option because they don't have the wrist strength strength to rack a slide on a on a pistol. And then there's um, rifles. Right, rifles are, are multi-use tools. Like a shotgun can be used for home defense. It can be used for hunting. You can take down. Uh, you know, birds and large game with it. If you're if you're into survival, you know, taking down the deer and uh, processing it for feeding your family. Uh, twenty two, the twenty two is probably the most useful of all the uh, ammunition rounds because you can use it in a pistol, twenty two LR pistol, small, lightweight, you know, cheap ammunition. Not the most deadly weapon, but if you're afraid or of uh, loud noises and you don't like the recoil of the larger caliber guns, 22 pistols have very low recoil. They're not very loud, easy to get used to if you have sort of a reaction to that. And then the 22 rifle can be used to take down small game. It's good for hunting. Uh, so that is something that I think people should consider if you're looking at a prolonged crisis where you need you know, firearms. Um, I would be remiss to not mention the AR-15. I've got mine right over there. Um, I, I think, well, the AR is, is a really good weapon to have um, as a prepper for a couple of reasons. Number one, it has, uh, it has a really good record for reliability. Uh, because it is the most popular rifle in the world, parts are readily available. And in a in, in a crisis where uh, the supply chains tend to get screwed up, it can be hard to find parts for exotic rifles and handguns. Uh, you know, if, if your gun is made in Germany or Italy or someplace and you're waiting you know, a year to get you know, new parts for it, you're not gonna have that gun in service, but ARs are <clears throat> very popular. You can find the parts anywhere. You probably know someone who is a gunsmith who can who can repair the gun if you if something goes wrong with it. I think AR is a good is a good option because um, reliability parts should be readily available. The ammunition is readily available. Any gun that you buy that you're potentially going to use during a crisis, it should have a common caliber uh, round that is going to be easy to purchase in a grid down crisis. Uh, so nine millimeter is the most popular 22 and nine millimeter, are the two most popular handgun rounds that should be available during a crisis. Uh, 308 and and uh, 223 Remington and 556 NATO for the AR are the most common rifle rounds should be available during a crisis. Again, if you have a really cool gun that costs you know $15,000, but you can't get the ammunition for it, you have a useless gun that you can't use. 
Um, and probably be a good idea if you know if you're if you have a gun to buy some ammunition uh, before the storm hits because you may not be able to get it afterward. Yep. Uh, ammo the prices. ammunition becomes very scarce during a crisis. Yep, talk is cheap and ammo is expensive. And there's a gunpowder shortage going on right now. And then, of course, with the uh, destabilization in, say, the Middle East and Ukraine, ammo prices going through the roof. So, yeah, yeah. that was that was pretty much all the research I've done into firearms and all the experience I've had. That was a really good overview in terms of uh, preparedness with firearms. One more thing I think is underrated in terms of self-defense and or hunting tools is a bow and arrow as well, because like the point you made earlier about a generator being loud, if you want to take down a turkey for some food, but you don't want to shoot a gun, make a noise, you can use a, a bow and arrow. And also the ammo is easier to retain. Once you fire the arrow, you can just go get it. Absolutely. Uh, yep. I, I think it's a great uh, observation. I had not thought about that, but that's a really good observation. Yeah. Quiet, yeah. inexpensive. Um, yeah. Takes practice. Way. Takes practice as with any tool, but it does take uh, practice. Very yeah. handy to have on hand and useful. And in terms of tools in general, and probably for a lot of things we've been talking about in this conversation, I'm also a big fan of having backups and sometimes backups for your backups. So yep. if your shovel breaks, make sure you have two shovels. If well, as I say in the military, two is one and one is none. So. Yep, exactly. <laughs> two is one and one is none. So maybe yeah, having it, two it, ARs. Anything that is, is yeah, any piece of uh, equipment that is critical to what you're doing, have two of them. So if you break or lose your primary, you have a backup. Exactly. Uh, absolutely. Well, cool. I think we covered pretty much every category I wanted to cover here. Food, water, communication, tools, um, your book. Where's your book available right now for people that want it? Easiest way to get the book is on Amazon. Cool. Uh, and it is available both in ebook and paperwork and Amazon. If you hate Amazon because they are communist globalist uh, shills, you can also get it on Barnes and Noble's website. It's available on Barnes and Noble. It's available there on paperback and ebook. It's also available on almost all ebook platforms. So Nook, Kobo, Apple Books, you can purchase the ebook there on any of those platforms. And if we're talking about preparedness, just got to say, buying the paperback is a lot better of an idea than yes. getting the ebook. So all of my books and reference materials that I plan to use during a grid down crisis, I have paper copies of it all. I, mm -hmm. I'm not relying on anything digital uh, for a crisis. Yeah. One of my favorite things to do is go to the uh, military surplus store in my area and check out their book and manual section. And they've got some awesome army field manuals from the seventies and all kinds of off grid yep. books and things like that. And I just scoop them up and, you, you will probably need them at some point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, so, idea. all right, Dave, thank you very much for coming on. Appreciate you. I will make sure your book, Emergency Preparedness and Off-Grid Communication is linked uh, below this video, below this podcast, wherever it's going to go. And then one last thing. Um, I'm sure most people listening are familiar with you and your work, but if anybody is listening who is not, what are your main channels? All right. My main uh, website is prayingmedic.com. You can find my books, articles, podcasts, videos, all on prayingmedic.com. I'm on Rumble. Uh, I am on 
Telegram. I'm I'm very active on Telegram. That's probably my most active place right now. Uh, I am on Twitter. I, you know, pop my head up on Twitter periodically and, and post there and, and True Social. But prayingmedic.com is the main place where you can find all my stuff. Beautiful. And I'll link all that down below too. Hey, I appreciate you taking the time to be here and impart all of your wisdom with us. It was a fantastic conversation. Very much appreciate it. I appreciate you having me on the show. Uh, And if anyone listening has any questions or you need more information on prayingmedic.com, there's a contact tab. Just hit the contact tab and you can email me. And I read my emails every day. Beautiful. And then make sure you tune into your local Praying Medic ham radio station. He will be broadcasting on the local I'll, bands. I'll, I'll be on the 20 meter band uh, most days. If you want to hit me up. Awesome, man. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you, man.